Good evening, Columbia, Missouri, for the first time over the FM stream. This is one of these nights on KCOU. A solo sports talk podcast style show covering the weirdest and wacky in Missouri and professional sports. Hope you're well on the Sunday evening, whenever and wherever you might be listening. One of these nights recorded live Sunday nights, 8 to 9 on KCOU and online on Spotify and all other streaming platforms. The One of These Nights podcast. Thanks so much for joining us tonight. thought the first episode went pretty well, like I mentioned. So the show's going to be still a bit of an experiment, but really excited with the way the first one turned out. And again, thank you for listening, no matter where you might be. We got a packed show ahead tonight. I wasn't really sure what I was going to touch on early on, but really a lot ended up uh really unfolding, uh, planning out the show today. First thing we're going to start with is something that Missourians don't talk about very often. That's the St. Louis football Cardinals. That's right. You might know the St. Louis Cardinal baseball team, but you probably don't know much about the St. Louis football Cardinals, which played in the gateway to the West from 1916 to 1987. I'll have the full story on their oral history. After that, our second Mizzou sports snippet, of the season the cowboy from holt summit profiling justin smith and what his impact had on missouri football in the early 2000s is on into the nfl where he was a playmaker into the early 20 teens then we're going to get into an oral history inspired by sb nation's john boyce 222 to zero the story of cumberland versus georgia tech football and the anniversary of this game coming up And finally, we wrap up with the craziest things in college football this weekend. I'll recap week two of America's greatest sport and hit on what you need to know that was interesting, weird, and wild from that game. But first, we'll go ahead and dive right in. The St. Louis football Cardinals, an NFL tragedy. NFL Sunday kicking off. Been an exciting day. Lots going on. Lots of different storylines. Don't know if you... Sat down and tuned into a game today, but the Kansas City Chiefs, Missouri's only team at this point, had a 40-26 to 26 win over the Jacksonville Jaguars. Lots of NFL storylines. Again, it's just such a headline sport, always generating news year-round. And that wasn't any different in 1960 when the Chicago Cardinals decided to pack it up and move to St. Louis after a 62-year stay in the Windy City. That was St. Louis's first football team, and they made it work. They moved from Chicago. They got the baseball team's blessing for that name. Initially, it was a bit of a struggle between these two teams trying to get really ownership of that name. But after a while, the St. Louis football Cardinals were birthed. You probably know the baseball Cardinals, 11 World Series titles. They're in the thick of a postseason run today. They just picked up their 79th win of the season on Sunday afternoon. Very well could be heading off for a deep October run this postseason. But the St. Louis football Cardinals did not exactly get off to the best start in their franchise early on in the 1960s. As I mentioned, the naming was a bit of a struggle. They initially got the nickname Big Red, or my personal favorite, the Gridbirds, an ode to the gridiron football field in which they played on. And the Gridbirds' first season, they practiced in the city park. That gives you a window into just how bad things were 
for these football Cardinals out the gate. They've shared Sportsman Park with the St. Louis baseball team, but initially that was a struggle too because it wasn't made for football capacities. It was simply made for a baseball layout, which in those days was very vast and wide open. After they struggled to finally get their footing in the city, the fans took a while to get on board. They finally finished above 500 for the first time in 1964 after their inaugural season in 1963. Ownership actually considered a move to Atlanta because of the stadium drama. They wanted out of Sportsman Park. They wanted to stop practicing in the city park. They wanted a new. They wanted a completely new stadium layout. And ownership believed that Atlanta might have been a solution to that. They continued to struggle, eventually staying in St. Louis after that. They struggled all the way through 1974 when the team made its first playoff appearance but was promptly eliminated. So after 11 seasons struggling in St. Louis, the team finally broke through in 1974. That was their first playoff appearance dating back to Chicago in 1948. They actually made the playoffs again in 1975, but again, flaked out early. So in case you missed it, 62-year stay in Chicago. They moved to St. Louis in 1962. The Gridbirds, as they were named, struggled to even get their footing in a park, sharing Sportsman's Park with the St. Louis Baseball Cardinals and practicing in a city park. Then it got even worse. They struggled to make the playoffs and were promptly eliminated in 1974 and 75. Two Thanksgivings really were the beginning of the end for the St. Louis football Cardinals. In 1976, famous... Cowboys safety duo known as Brainwaves, Cliff Harris and Charlie Waters, maybe the most chemistry of any NFL safety pairing in league history. They converged on a play that would have given the Cardinals the win on a Thanksgiving Day game in Dallas, the national TV and the national spotlight on them. Lots of people say that there was obvious pass interference on the play, but nonetheless, it wasn't called. And the Cardinals struggled again and missed the playoffs in 1976 for the first time in three years. The next year, they put themselves in a position to make the playoffs again, but they were trounced 55-14 to by the Miami Dolphins, one of those great Dolphin teams in the mid-'70s, and promptly lost out, again dashing their playoff hopes. The writing was on the wall at this point that the Cardinals might not make it in St. Louis much longer. At this point, it was their 15th season in St. Louis, attendance still struggling, mediocrity still missing the playoffs. This really culminated in the early 1980s. In 1984, the team had a chance to beat the Washington Redskins and take the NFC East title. But Neil O'Donohue on to kick. He missed a 34-yard field goal and a chance to take the division in a last-second loss to Washington in the final game of the season. Washington took it 29-27. to And again, for the ninth straight season, the Cardinals were eliminated. After that, it was a steep downhill slope. This is entry is from Wikipedia, who I think puts it really well on their final few seasons. Quote, the overall mediocrity of the Cardinals, combined with an old stadium being Sportsman Park, caused game attendance to dwindle. Once again, the Bidwills, the owner of the team at the time, decided to move the team, this time to either Baltimore, Phoenix, or Jacksonville. So the writing's on the wall that the team will, in fact, move here in 1987. Bill Bildwell, fearing for his safety, stayed away from several of the 1987 home games. There's so much animosity in the crowd, so much frustration with 27 years of mediocrity, so much frustration from these fans for such a poor setting and stadium to watch their football team. That owner, Bill Bildwell, didn't even feel safe going to his own games. 
Eventually, their hand was forced. Their last home game in St. Louis was December 13th, 1987, and the Cardinals won that 27-24, to ironically, ended up getting a win on what overall could be described as a loss as their tenure in Missouri. They won that game with the New York Giants in front of a paltry 29,000 fans on a late Sunday afternoon. And then on March 15th, 1988, the NFL team owners eventually allowed Bill Bidwell, I should say, to move the Cardinals from St. Louis to Tempe, Arizona for the 1988 season where they would become and still are the Arizona Cardinals. The tragedy, the enigma that is the St. Louis football Cardinals never really got its footing in St. Louis. Eventually, unfortunately for St. Louis fans, they did get a team back in 1995, the St. Louis Rams. Los Angeles moved their team under ownership Sam Kroenke to St. Louis where the team was competitive for a 10-year stretch, even found itself competing in the Super Bowl and winning it under the greatest show on turf. Kurt Warner, Isaac Bruce, Torrey Holt, Marshall Falk. Some of those fantastic teams, but things flaked out in the early 2000s. And as many know, once again, St. Louis was scorned again by an NFL team. Kroenke moved the Rams back to Los Angeles where they are now winning games as the Los Angeles Rams, the defending NFC champions, and vying for a Super Bowl bid once more. And yet, St. Louis finds itself without an NFL team once again. But no doubt, the really tragedy of the St. Louis football Cardinals weighs more heavy on the hearts of fans than does besides the recency of the Los Angeles Rams. So there's our first block, our first sports snippet of the nights on one of these nights. I hope you enjoyed that first really kickoff here to our show tonight. We got plenty more upcoming, including a Mizzou sports snippet. The Cowboy from Colt Summit. Eventually, we'll get to 222 to nothing Georgia Tech versus Cumberland, the oral history of that game. And finally, we'll finish off with the craziest things in college football this weekend. This is one of these nights on KCOU. Don't go anywhere. You We'll go back one of these nights in the one of these nights podcast on KCU 88.1 FM and KCU.FM in the blue box and streaming online on Spotify, Spotify, Spotify and other streaming platforms. I realized that I designed this show kind of to lead in and out with that wonderful song by the Eagles in which the show is named after. And I completely forgot to lead the show off of it. So I apologize if you were expecting that. Everybody's shaking the rust off here at the start of the semester at the University of Missouri, including Missouri football. It took a 38-7 win over West Virginia last night. You heard it here on KCOU 88.1 FM. We'll have the call of the team's next game Saturday night at 6.30 p.m. Zach Berman and Connor McCann will be on the call on that one. But for our second Mizzou sports snippet of the show semester, I wanted to touch on an era of Mizzou football that most fans stay far away from. And that would be the early 2000s and the late 1990s. This was not a good time for Missouri football. This was a team that saw a lot of success in the early 1950s and 1960s, tapered off toward the 1970s and 1980s. They regained their footing in the 1990s and eventually, under Gary Pinkle, who was hired in 2001, found their way into an elite program and won back-to-back SEC East titles in 2013 after moving to that conference from the Big 12, but routinely found itself as a low-key heavy hitter in the Big 12 conference in the early to mid-2000s. 
And a gigantic part of that was a player who is massively overlooked in Mizzou lore. That would be the cowboy from Holt Summit, none other than Justin Smith. I know for extreme Mizzou football fans, I'm not talking about the six foot seven receiver that has been a part of the Tigers roster past couple years and hasn't really recorded much playing time. I'm talking about the absolute unit of a defensive end that played for Coach Finkel, Coach Pinkle in his early and the absolute latest days of his playing career. Justin Smith, one of the most underrated Missouri players of all time. Dave Matters' book puts it extremely well. You can take the Cowboy out of Holt Summit, but you can't take the, the Holt Summit out of the Cowboy. Interesting enough, he was unrecruited out of Jefferson City High School where he played his ball just 30 minutes south of Missouri's campus until, really completely flew under the radar until... Florida coach Steve Spurrier, who had five SEC championship rings at this point, had an All-American tight end go down due to injury right before signing day back in 1997. At that point, according to Dave Matter's book, he contacted the Smith family and said, quote, I know we've never called or contacted you, and I know, we've give, I know you've given a verbal to Mizzou. I know you've got like 23 relatives who graduated from Mizzou, and then it's only 29 miles away from your home. We don't want to harass you on your decision, but our All-American tight end went down with a torn ACL, and we think you can come in here and play. Justin Smith thought that was a prank call. He was just about ready to sign on with the Missouri Tigers, completely flew under the recruiting radar. They knew he could play at the next level, but he wasn't a player that was drawing national attention, especially not the tight end spot. Justin eventually said, quote, Spurrier knew things that we didn't even know about us. And he didn't even have, we didn't even know we had a clue who we were or who Justin was. At that point, his father said, it dawned on us that Justin might be pretty good. Indeed, he was, and Spurrier no doubt thought so. But an absolute specimen as a freshman, six foot five, 255-pound Justin Smith immediately thrived on the defensive line for Missouri. He stuck with his commitment and actually started on the defensive line as a freshman for the Tigers. And in his junior season, he set the Mizzou record for sacks as a junior. Also set the team record for tackles in a loss that season. Tackles for loss, I should say, that season. Eventually, a decision came around. After thriving for Smith but not doing a lot of winning, he had a decision to make on whether he wanted to enter his name in the 2004 NFL draft where he would surely be a high draft pick or if he wanted to stick around and play for a new coach. At that point, the Tigers showed a head coach out the door and hired none other than Gary Pinkle for the 2001 season. Smith gave it a lot of thought. He said that he heard him out on his pitch. He eventually went to his introductory press conference, met the man, considered sticking around for his senior season, but ultimately the opportunity to go to the NFL was too much to pass up. He set those records with 12 tackles for a loss that year, 86 tackles as a freshman, and eventually was the number four pick in the 2001 NFL draft where he thrived in a 3-4 scheme. He eventually found his way to San Francisco where he made five straight Pro Bowls from 2009 to 2013. And really, this is a player who completely flew under the spotlight even when he was thriving at the NFL play, 
at the NFL level. He declined multiple endorsement deals. He turned down Sports Illustrated when they wanted him for a cover story. He really had no use for the national spotlight. His father, David, said in this same excerpt out of Dave Matters' book, quote, his favorite thing to do is just go to, to go to Costco, buy a bunch of hamburgers and pork steaks, bring those home, grill them, and have people over. That's his way of being big time. If he can sit on the back of a pickup's tailgate, that makes it much better. He was nicknamed Godzilla. Friends called him Smitty, but in San Francisco, he was a cowboy, a nod to, a nod to his roots on his farm back home. He eventually settled down and bought Railwood Golf Club near his house. And he plays, he charges patrons a measly $25 a round to play golf. He retired at age 35 in 2014 after a very successful 13-year career in the NFL. He's one of the best players ever to come through Mizzou. 1,370 tackles, 87 sacks, 16 forced fumbles, three picks, and 30 passes defended in his time as a Tiger over three seasons. His 87 sacks ranked 10th among active players when the 2014 season ended in the NFL. Only two current players at the time of his retirement started more games than his 217 NFL starts. Pretty impressive company, Peyton Manning and Charles Woodson. He eventually moved back and retired from the NFL, as I mentioned, buying that Railwood Golf Club. And he simply ended his time as humbly as only he could. Quote, it was a good ride. It certainly was. One of the best players to ever come through mid-Missouri, Justin Smith, out of Jefferson City High School by way of Holt Summit, eventually on to the Tigers and on to the NFL, where he certainly made a name for himself as the number four pick in the 2001 NFL Draft. That's this week's Mizzou Sports Snippet. We've already touched on the enigma of the St. Louis football Cardinals. We've hit on Justin Smith. And now a big one, folks, something I've been looking forward to getting to to a while 222 to nothing. The story of Cumberland versus Georgia Tech. Uh, more details on, on the other side of a break. Don't go anywhere. This is one of these nights on KCOU. Jones here with you on a Sunday night. One of these nights in the One of These Nights podcast on KCU 88.1 FM, recording live every Sunday night and available on Spotify and other streaming platforms the very next day. The packed show so far already touched on the enigma of the St. Louis football Cardinals, a bit of the oral history of Justin Smith. And for this next sports snippet, boy, is it a doozy. You might have heard this story before. It was told very well by SB Nation's John Boyce in a video that has over a million views on YouTube. It is the enigmatic, eye-popping, bizarre story simply called 222 to nothing, the story of Georgia Tech versus Cumberland football. 
What a story it is indeed. Over 100 years since what's been labeled as the greatest beatdown between grown men in football history. Georgia Tech, as you might know, one of the premier powerhouses of the really early 20th century, practically invented the game. John Heisman, a significant part of the sports development in the early 20th century. This game took place October 7th, 1916, between the Georgia Tech engineers, as they were called in that day, you might know them now as the Yellow Jackets, and the Cumberland College Bulldogs at Grant Field, still the site of where Georgia Tech plays its football in Atlanta, Georgia, on a crisp October afternoon. Bobby Dodd Stadium at Historic Grant Field, again, the site of this one. This game was a matter of revenge, shockingly enough. You have to go all the way back to a year prior to find its roots. Cumberland College and its athletic department were extremely struggling at the time, looking for any way to grow their bottom line. They had a pretty strong baseball team, so the athletic director at the time decided to pull off a stunt of sorts when his team hosted the Georgia Tech Engineers for a regularly scheduled baseball contest on a February afternoon. He decided to throw the Engineers for a loop by hiring a group of minor league baseball players to go undercover and pretend to be college students at Cumberland so that he could blow Georgia Tech out of the park and create some buzz for the baseball team in the hope that they generate enough ticket revenue to where they could fund the football team for that season. Georgia Tech was a respectable baseball team in that 1915 season, but they certainly couldn't compete with several players that already played at the Major League Baseball level and even minor league players for that matter. And to make a long story short, that game did not go well for Georgia Tech. 22 to nothing, Cumberland took it. Players routinely bunted after a while, trying to just keep the line moving and embarrass Georgia Tech. At that point, the head man of the engineers was none other than John Heisman. You might recognize that name. He's known as one of the fathers of modern football. If you don't recognize the name, the last name by itself, the national trophy given every year toward the best player in college football has his namesake, the Heisman Trophy, even still to this day. He did not take that very well. A 22-0 defeat, he was extremely embarrassed. And as you can imagine, when he found out that Cumberland had indeed thrown him for a loop and played professional players, that didn't exactly sit well with him. So you can imagine that a year later, when Cumberland came up on his football team's schedule, he was going to take the opportunity to get revenge. Well, unfortunately for Cumberland, that 1915 baseball season did not go as planned. Those minor league players couldn't nightside as collegiate athletes the entire season, and the team struggled. They didn't, uh, excuse me, they didn't generate enough revenue to support the football team, and eventually, Cumberland found itself in a pickle. The next season, they were scheduled to play at Georgia Tech, and if they didn't send a team. They would have had to fork over $3,000 in fine. That's $66,000 in today's money for a struggling athletic department that didn't have it to give up. So eventually what the athletics department decided to do was recruit young law students who were willing to prove themselves, trying to impress their professors, and made the trip south from Tennessee to Atlanta to take on John Heisman's Georgia Tech engineers, who at this point 
were one of the most well-respected football dynasties in the early 20th century. You already know the score and ended up 222 to nothing. But the story of how it got there is another beast in and of itself. So quick math for you. 222 points, just the numbers alone, would mean 32 touchdowns in 55 minutes. Which, if you boil that down, that means a touchdown every minute and 43 seconds. And that's exactly what Georgia Tech did. As I mentioned, this was an extreme extractment of revenge for that baseball game. As far as the game itself, Georgia Tech went up 28 to nothing just 18 minutes into the game. Football was an extremely different sport at this point. The forward pass was considered an uncommon play. But boy, did Georgia Tech open things up. They eventually completely outscored Cumberland in the first quarter. Back then, football had a strange rule in which you could choose to kick after a team scored after you if you wanted to keep your defense on the field. And Cumberland chose to do that not once, not twice, not even three times, not even four. Five times Cumberland chose to kick the ball back to Georgia Tech after they scored. That certainly helped them run it up. But these were world-class football players that they were taking on. A bunch of law students with everything to prove and limited to no football knowledge. And boy, did it show. Cumberland's quarterback, George Edwards, appeared on only two plays. And including the first one, he was knocked unconscious on the field after taking a quarterback sack. He eventually found his way out for the second quarter, clearly showing concussion system, excuse me, symptoms consistent with a concussion. But as John Boyce puts it in his video very aptly, concussions at this point in 1916 were taken about as seriously as a medical injury as a Charlie horse. He was knocked unconscious twice, but still found his way back onto the field, and it was all for nothing. Georgia Tech led 126 to nothing at the half. Eventually, Cumberland's coach approaches John Heisman at halftime and asks him to shorten the game. We have to remember this is a matter of revenge for Heisman. He wasn't exactly going to give up much ground. He does reason a bit with him and agrees to shorten the game by a measly five minutes. He wants to prolong this beatdown for as long as he can. Eventually, Heisman discovers three Cumberland players hiding behind a fence in the hope of not having to take the beating any further. They're forced to come out and continue playing the game. Eventually, one of the more comedic moments of the game, a feral dog actually ended up chasing the Cumberland running back around the field. It got on to Grant Field in Atlanta and wreaked havoc on the game and delayed it for quite a while, but it did not delay the inevitable. Georgia Tech eventually put up 221 points on the scoreboard, only for a little poetic justice at the very end. Really, the only significant thing that went in Cumberland's favor the entire afternoon was blocking Georgia Tech's last point after attempt, which ensured absolute poetic justice for John Heisman. I said they actually put up 221 points. I meant 222. The PAT was for 223 points. But the only thing that Cumberland was able to do all day, a scrawny group of players who knew limited to nothing about football, They were able to block Georgia Tech's final PAT attempt to keep it a poetic 222-0 football defeat in response for a shameful 22-0 
cheating baseball defeat a year prior. John Heisman got his revenge, and it is still the largest defeat in college football history. 126 to nothing still wouldn't even come close if a team were to reach that halftime total in a total game. But Georgia Tech versus Cumberland won for the history books and a matter of revenge for a football legend. Such an interesting story. We're coming up on the anniversary of it. October 7th, 1916. We just passed the 100-year anniversary of this game. There's a lot of great resources and fantastic reads on this strange event in sports history available online. Anyway, that'll do it for our third sports snippet of the night. 222 to nothing. The story of Georgia Tech and Cumberland. Hope you enjoyed it. Still got a lot coming up. We'll cover the craziest in a wild weekend of college football on the other side of a break. You're listening to one of these nights on KCOU 88.1 FM and the One of These Nights podcast. This is one of these nights on KCU 8.1 FM, KCU.FM in the blue box. Be ready to stream tomorrow on Spotify and all streaming platforms. Hey, what a start for Mizzou soccer and Mizzou volleyball on the 2019 season. You can hear all those games at home live on KCU.FM and KCU 88.1 FM for select contests. And this week, a full slate of action as Tiger Volleyball returns home. KCU will have the call on Friday afternoon, so done with classes done with work be sure to tune in on your drive home as missouri volleyball takes on austin p and it's a double header in the tiger invitational 7 p.m the broadcast of that one we'll have pregame coverage starting at 1 30 and coverage of tiger volleyball all afternoon then a big weekend for us here at kcou as volleyball again gets things going with umkc pregame starts at 1 30 kcu sports saturday covered by that as well and then Missouri football pregame coverage starts at 6 o'clock on Saturday night as the Tigers look for another win against Southeast Missouri State on the heels of a 38-7 blowout domination of the West Virginia Mountaineers at home yesterday afternoon. Boy, did Kelly Bryant look good. And the Tigers looking to add on to that momentum. Well, speaking of college football, it was a big weekend all across the sport. A lot of craziness, especially in these first three weeks if you count week zero which I certainly do. I love how college football has prioritized that. The number one source of mania in college football this season has undoubtedly been the Pac-12 conference. Top to bottom, this was supposed to be a big step forward for what's widely considered one of the weaker conferences in college football, and yet they've been struggling. It's been interesting to watch. The power at the top of this conference has not exactly gone the way that people have expected. In fact, the Pac-12 actually started off the college football season with a disappointing loss. Arizona dropped a game to Hawaii in Week 0. 
There's so much to cover this weekend after a wild one in the Pac-12. Utah, a sleeper team for the college football playoff, took care of Northern Illinois. Then on Friday night, Arizona State, the Fighting Herm Edwards, got a great challenge from Sacramento State. They won that game 19-7, to but Sacramento State threatened all the way to the end. Elsewhere, California, a stunner over number 14 Washington and Jacob Eason last night. The Golden Bears 2-0 and after a walk-off win. Greg Thomas, a 17-yard field goal with eight seconds left. And Cal knocks down the Huskies. That was a team with a lot of preseason hype and expectations, especially after the way they performed in week one. Elsewhere, Oregon angry after a week one defeat to Auburn, 77-6. to A 71-point win. We just heard about a 222 to nothing football game. This one wasn't much closer than that. No problem for the Ducks over the upstart Wolfpack who knocked off Purdue last week. And Mike Leach at Washington State, you can't count his bunch out after Gardner Minshew walks out the door. He's still got something going up there in Pullman. Number 22nd ranked Washington uh, State Cougars, I should say, have no problem led by Anthony Gordon, 59-17 to over the Northern Colorado. Here's where the craziness starts. Stanford, the number 23 team in the nation without its starting quarterback, K.J. Costello, always struggles in a game against USC. It feels like every single game, every single year this game is week two, and it feels like whoever's not supposed to win this game wins it every single year. That's exactly what we saw. USC Trojans see their starting quarterback, J.T. Daniels, go down to a season-ending ACL injury the week prior. Keaton Slovis, top quarterback recruit, worked in high school with Kurt Warner, steps right up and simply just casually throws for 377 yards and three touchdowns. And USC fights on to a blowout win over Stanford last night. The 23rd-ranked Cardinal drop out of the rankings. And suddenly, Clay Helton's seat cools off a little bit. USC was a team with very limited expectations after a wild offseason. Clay Helton, many thought he would be fired. USC decided to retain him. They tried to bring Cliff Kingsbury in as their offensive coordinator and did so successfully until he failed upward for a coaching job with the NFL's Arizona Cardinals. Eventually, they brought in North Texas and former Texas Tech offensive guru at quarterback Graham Harrell at offensive coordinator. So an up. Really an upstart start for USC after a rocky offseason. How about a former Big 12 North rivalry? Nebraska and Colorado. This was a fantastic game. Nebraska with a ton of expectations heaped on them. They took a 17-0 halftime lead in Boulder, but boy did Ralphie run in the second half. The Buffaloes, 31 points in the second half. They rally and send the game to overtime. They have a 32-year-old kicker who came up big for him in multiple junctures in this game, including the game-winning field goal. James Stefanow, 34 yarders in overtime, gives Colorado its first lead of the game. Colorado can't respond after they suffered injury at the kicking spot as well. Their punter had to try his second kick of the game and didn't even come close on a game-tying field goal, so a tough loss for Scott Frost's team. But Colorado, another Pac-12 team nobody saw coming. They are 2-0. and after a wild win in Boulder. Again, a 17-point comeback win for Steven Montez and company. Also, UCLA 0-2 to start the season under Chip Kelly. Big rebuild coming for them, and it could easily be 0-3. Jalen Hurts and Oklahoma come calling to Inglewood next week. That's a tough loss at home to San Diego State. 
two mid-majors that UCLA falls to for the second straight year. It is definitely a rebuild for the Bruins. They fall 23-14 to last night. Elsewhere, Khalil Tate and company had themselves a fun night last night led by head coach Kevin Sumlin. No defense was played in this game. Khalil Tate, 138 yards, actually left due to injury, but he still had his way. And they allow 41 points to an FCS school, Northern Arizona. Final score, Arizona didn't really have any problems just because they were able to outrun Northern Arizona. 65-41 the final here, 106 total points. And then it's those Rainbow Warriors. Hawaii hosting a Pac-12 school for the second straight game. And they're able to dispatch Oregon State 31-28. to Absolute craziness. Meskel with Ryan Meskel for Hawaii with a go-ahead 28-yard field goal late. And suddenly, more chaos in the Pac-12. Top to bottom. Just a bizarre weekend in that conference. No sense made of it so far. The standings have just been completely flipped on their head from what many thought coming in. There's been nothing but craziness there. Not in the Pac-12, but out west. Minnesota and Fresno State. What a game this was. Minnesota off to a 2-0 start under P.J. Fleck. But Fresno State's been a program that has suffered just absolute misery to start this season. Last year, they had a fantastic year. Won the Mountain West Conference Championship under quarterback Marcus McMarion. They're really developing something out there in Fresno. This is a team that's seen a lot of success as of late. But last night in two overtimes, what a tough game. What a tough loss. They had a lead on Minnesota, 21-17, to as late as the third quarter. Golden Gophers eventually rumbled back with 14 fourth-quarter points and send the game to overtime. But unfortunately for Fresno State, they were able to keep Minnesota to a field goal and had a chance to win the game. They sure did have a chance to win the game. Fresno State in the home red uniforms over the visiting Minnesota Golden Gophers. Trying to pull up the hi- highlights here. I apologize for our technical uh, technical difficulties, I should say. Jorge Reyna, in his second, in his second career start, Goes deep, down 38-35. A touchdown wins the game in double overtime here. Here's the call on CBS Sports. He'll throw. End zone for the win! And it's intercepted! And Minnesota wins it! Winfield! The Golden Gophers are golden tonight! Great call there, by the way. This is heartbreaking as it is. But to those same USC Trojans who are meant, who I said uh, were 2-0, a big part of that, they took on none other than the Fresno State Bulldogs. And would you believe it if I told you the exact same thing happened a week earlier at the Coliseum? Jorge Reyna in his first career start, just doing what he can for Fresno State. Again, taking over for Marcus McMarion, who was one of the best mid-major playmakers last year for the Conf- Mountain West Conference champions. Fresno State down 28-31 at this point in the Coliseum last week. I'll give you a guess what happens. Reyna gets away. Down the field. It is caught. Are you kidding me? In his first FBS start, Jorge Reyna off the pump. Down the sideline. Intercepted. Isaiah Polamau. Heartbreak for Reyna. This is a will. 
Heartbreak for Reyna, indeed. So, for Fresno State, back-to-back losses at the end of games that they very easily could have won. Jorge Reyna in his first two FBA starts, for FBS starts, I should say. There was two interceptions, and they come up short once again. Elsewhere in the SEC, a bit of comedic gold. BYU traveling to Rocky Top on the heels of Tennessee's embarrassing loss to Georgia State. A visitor from the Sun Belt. That game did not go well for Jeremy Pruitt in Tennessee. And unfortunately for their fans, they didn't get a break on Saturday night. BYU and Zach Wilson had the ball with no timeouts. Down 16-13. to They connect on a 60-yard pass play which sets up a game-tying field goal and sends the game to overtime. Eventually, Tennessee keeps afloat. They score on the first possession. And they're able to take the lead 23-16. to But BYU and Wilson rumble back once again. They tie the game at 23. We go to a second overtime. Eventually, Tennessee back the other way. They turn the ball over in the second overtime. BYU with the chance to win on a go-ahead touchdown. And that's exactly what happens. BYU knocks off Tennessee. Volunteers fall to 0-2. More chaos in college football as the Cougars pick up a huge win. Lastly, offensive chaos. 63-point efforts this weekend for Jalen Hurts in Oklahoma, who topped visiting South Dakota 70-14 to at the Palace on the Prairie. Boy, a fantastic effort and another Heisman case for Lincoln Riley's quarterback. But they weren't the only team. As I mentioned, Oregon puts up 77. 11 touchdowns for the Ducks on that night. And then Maryland, with a fantastic effort, they put up 63 in a 43-point win over a ranked team. They were favored to win that game. Maryland, a rare, Syracuse to say, a rare ranked underdog. But in that game, 63 points from those three teams. I was most impressed by them. Elsewhere, LSU-Texas, that was a fantastic game. Back and forth, a lot of really good offense in that one. I'm so impressed by the way that LSU's been able to open up their offense. I think they're a playoff team at this point, and that could certainly cause chaos in the college football playoff ranking, no matter what you have in store. It's a great week of college football, another great week of sports in the books. Thankful that you chose to end your weeks with me here on a Sunday night on KCU 88.1 FM. No matter where you're listening, no matter when you might be listening, I certainly appreciate your taking your time out of a Sunday night and spending it with me. We will be back here in the blue box, hopefully. We're still working out some of our production scheduling here at KCOU, but hopefully back in the same time, same place next week. I sure hope you'll join us for more sports snippets and the lighter side, the weirder side of sports history. Signing off for the final time tonight. Again, you can find our show, as always, on Spotify and other streaming platforms under the One of These Nights podcast name. Thanks so much for joining. Hope to see you next week. I wish you a great start to your Monday morning. And thanks again for joining us. God bless.